Sylvia Murchinsko here from Ensana Center. I talked in a previous presentation about structuralist psychotherapy. I am picking up the subject again because it was squeezed at the end of a more general presentation about psychotherapy. A new theory like this is much too voluminous to be compressed in a 10-15 minutes talk at the end of another presentation. Nothing of this kind exists up to this point and everything you are hearing are brand new ideas and principles. Or to be more exact, they are brand new for this field since no theory or practice comes out of nowhere. But it is a novel way of putting together elemental construction blocks picked up from a variety of fields and especially from my own experience of working for two decades in psychiatry. Like a Lego building made essentially of similar Lego bricks, you can get pretty complex unseen before designs using relatively simple components. This is what structuralist psychotherapy is, and this is what uh, all psychotherapy styles in use currently essentially are. The first thing I'm going to try to avoid is to drown this presentation in words and render this whole new system as irrelevant as Oprah's psychobabble. So let me make it as clear as I can in uh, as little words as I can. Structuralist psychotherapy is based on the idea that our mind, that means this vast collection of thoughts and emotions, is an intricate structure no different than a cathedral or a skyscraper or a gigantic clockwork. Like a cathedral or a skyscraper or clockwork, it is nothing but an instrument. Like any instrument, its value, or since we talk about life-related issues, its health, is judged by how good it serves its ultimate purpose, the survival of the individual and his species. But since survival of oneself and species is an abstract notion, uh, its closest equivalent would be the struggle to obtain this ill-defined currency called happiness. When all the human body, the mind and the physical part function properly, happiness is triggered when, it, uh, when a need is met. While the needs, as defined by Maslow, range from obvious, like food, shelter, security, to more abstract, like esteem and self-actualization, they are all subservient to the need to exist as an individual, as a family, as a nation, as a race, as a species. For uh, you out there inclined towards philosophical thought, uh, what is even behind the so-called individual and his kin? It seems that there is something deeper, since existence is in fact determined by how fit the individual is for survival in a certain moment. But also it means how adaptable that individual is if that environment changes, how versatile he is in pursuing his needs. So there are two independent characteristics I'm describing. First, how good an individual is adapted to a current environment, and second, how fast and complete can an individual adapt if there is any change in the environment. These characteristics are determined by the genes, but the genes themselves are nothing but rather an indifferent collection of molecules. The information contained in the way these molecules are arranged is the real entity fighting to, fighting to exist. So we have in us a set of instructions, a message, an orderly string of information fighting against disorder chaos, randomness, which in this case we will label as non-existence. 
This information engraved itself, engraved itself in a string of nucleotides that assemble themselves in chromosomes. The chromosomes instruct trillions of atoms and molecules how to form a structure like a cocoon that will protect this message from returning to chaos or non-existence. And who is this cocoon? Uh, very simple. It is me and you and other billions or trillions of live beings on this earth. Yes, you understood right. I am about to take the worshipped human race off its pedestal and call it nothing but a simple cocoon, a simple protective envelope uh, that is meant to protect a message. And this message contains also instructions about how the cocoon is supposed to uh, know when it is doing a good job at protecting the message. This is why we experience pleasure, happiness, pain, sadness, anger. These are just signals that we are doing either a good job or a poor job at guarding the message. What is beyond this insight is anybody's guess. Maybe this is the point where God enters the stage? Is the message God's message? Well, it may be tempting to stop trying to understand how things hang together and put everything under the concept of God. It is also not that difficult to accept that the message is just the universe randomly running a gambling scheme that after billions or trillions of years finally stumbled upon a combination of instructions that have this strange property to oppose the returning to chaos or non-existence. If you are going to ask what are the odds of that happening, the answer is pretty high. Given the fact that the universe has been mixing this bowl of randomness for so long that sooner or later some pattern is doomed to happen. But, since I promised I'm going to try to avoid coming too close to that kind of talk that can be followed by very few, let's go back to our topic, structuralist psychotherapy. So how does all this philosophy help understand what to do when we face an individual in distress of psychological kind? First of all, distress in itself is not pathological. Only the intensity, persistence and context gives the distress a pathological meaning. As I said before, any human emotion, including negative ones, are just signals that tell us whether we are good or bad guardians of the message. And getting this uh, signal is extremely valuable and necessary, in no way pathological, even if we do not like to hear it sometimes, like in the case of pain, anxiety, sadness. Then who is to say when distress is pathological? I am going to deliberately skip this question because it leads into a whole new direction as complex as the current topic. Maybe I will make another presentation out of it. But I will say only that distress, when it is declared pathological by a specialist in these matters, psychologist or psychiatrist, it reflects some breakdown in this enormous structure of information we call the mind. We have to go in there and repair the structure, make sure it is again sound, can take stress without breaking. And in general, it starts again functioning like a versatile tool in helping us achieve happiness. Of course, we can use the image of a person getting into a maze of pipelines, engines, devices, with a set of tools and starting hammering things, unscrewing things, disconnecting and reconnecting pipelines, like a plumber or electrician. But all these repairs happen in a very abstract way. We do hammer concepts, beliefs, perceptions into different shapes. We disconnect or reconnect pieces of information to make the mind a coherent narrative. Some might ask, according to what rules? Where is the theory of the mind? Is there an ego, a need, a superego? Where is the blueprint you use to repair the mind? Well, shocking or not, here it comes. There is no blueprint. 
You cannot have a blueprint when you work with such a massive mosaic. You do not impose any particular order or structure. You make sure a structure happens and as much as possible you let the patient do the work. The therapist acts only as a supervisor, kicking tires here and there, shaking some pipelines, making sure that they are solidly installed, checking if the switches turn on and off properly, but you do not dictate how the scaffolding looks like or the structure itself looks like. In structuralist psychotherapy, there will be no Dr. Laura or Dr. Phil to tell you how it is. The patient decides how they want to be. The patient decides what to make out of the reality and how to respond to it. Does that mean that the patient, who essentially is a person in distress, already proven to be a poor architect of his own mind since his mental structure did collapse under pressure, is he supposed to be sent out there free to make again the same mistakes? Obviously the answer is no, since now he is not working alone, but under the supervision of a therapist. Study after study showed that the strongest predictor of success in therapy is the quality of the relationship between the therapist and the patient. This puzzled researchers and made no sense to them because everybody believed that the value of therapy is in the theory of the mind or in the theory of psychotherapy. Well, it turns out that, that the value is not there at all because all theories until now approach the mind as if it is some kind of unique machinery with some minor variations here and there. And the clinician knows how this machinery must look like, therefore all is needed is someone to bring it up to specs. The view may work for the brain as an organ, the anatomy of the brain and the neural circuitry within it. The brain has a definable structure that can be recognized as the right one. When a radiologist reads an MRI of the brain, uh, he will be able to tell you if this organ is healthy or pathological because there are a narrow range of variations that are defined as normal in terms of anatomy. But even that approach works only when you look at it from a distance because the moment you magnify the brain tissue you realize that even this so-called right configuration splits into an enormous number of individual variations which all can function in a satisfactory manner so they are within normal. The mind though as a function of the brain can assume even a wider variety of shapes with very few common traits. So why is the quality of the relationship with the therapist so important? It is because the therapist and the patient must become a team, coordinating with each other, understanding each other, counting on each other. Only when they can both embark in this process of changing the faulty structure that just collapsed and building another one. As a therapist, you are supposed to bring with you the blueprints under the form of uh, one theory or another, one view or another, about how the mind is supposed to look like to work. In structuralist therapy, there is no blueprint. There is only building and testing, building and testing. The mind can take whatever shape the patient chooses as long as it is solid, durable, stable in time, but also versatile, allowing to respond to changes in environment. Now I'm going to do something that uh, runs the risk to be pointed out as inconsistency, given all I said until now. I'm going to talk about principles and guidelines. Well, you may say a theory. Well, does that constitute a theory? Well, maybe it is a theory, but my theory does not contain static images and diagrams. It contains just guidelines. I do not tell you what the final product is. I am just telling you what are the characteristics that the product must have.
and also I am giving you the guiding principles of how to conduct this process of rebuilding called psychotherapy. So, let's go back to the issue of therapist-patient connection, traditionally called therapeutic alliance, or the French word, uh, often annoying anglophones, rapport. It's kind of difficult to pronounce. The word in French means interaction, but has other meanings as well. How do you connect with the patient? The first rule, there must be some level of similarity between the patient and the therapist, but it cannot be identity. The therapist must be similar but not identical and where to draw the line is a rather subjective matter. When I say subjective I mean the patient's perspective. The patient is the one who defines what is the right mix of similarity and difference. Let's start with the most obvious. They, most, they both must speak the same language. But not only that, they have to have a similar fund of knowledge. Even if you know the language there will be little communication if you have to stop and define every other minute all sorts of allusions, references, metacommunications. For those who are not familiar with this notion, metacommunication, uh, that is everything that accompanies a dialogue but is not expressed in words, tone of the voice, posture, facial, facial expression, gestures, and uh, others. Identity is another enemy. Think about how exciting a conversation with oneself can be. What new things can you tell to yourself that you already did not know? Maybe that is why solitary confinement is considered one of the worst punishments you can inflict on a human being. Another factor that influences the connection between patient and therapist is inner balance and energy. People in general are attracted by two qualities, inner balance and energy. These are by no means the only things that attract people to each other, but they are the most, uh, among the most powerful. Now, when we talk about balance and energy in the same time, imagine the scene. What is more impressive? Balancing on the tip of your finger either a feather or a fridge. People are not going to be attracted by a person who is in balance because his emotions and thoughts are flat. But they are going to be attracted by a person who experiences strong emotions and complex thoughts, but they are still able to maintain an inner balance. That is the kind of person the therapist must strive to become. Eliminating emotions and thoughts will eventually put you in balance, but that will make you also a terribly uninteresting, therefore unattractive person. So finding balance by stopping your thoughts and emotions is not the way to go. Being relaxed and emptying your mind of thoughts may have some value, some personal value for the therapist, for the patient, but this is not what will make the therapist good at what he is supposed to achieve. That means relieving the psychological distress of another person identified as a patient. Another quality is hope. A therapist must be a model for the patient in this respect. Hope is defined as an unflinching belief in a positive outcome. And it is mandatory. I'm not talking about the sappy and irritating superficial cheerleader optimism. I'm talking about the firm attitude that the solution always exists. And even if you do not have it right this moment, it does not mean that it doesn't exist. Finally, we will talk about something that may appear antithetical to many, but is, it is in, essential, in essence not. Integrity with flexibility. And this is very simple to explain. Diamond has integrity. It does not deform under pressure. Nothing scratches it. But it can also shatter if you deform it, like, for example, when you strike it with a hammer. Chewing gum has a lot of flexibility, but no integrity in the sense that it will bend however you want, 
but it will never maintain an identifiable shape. It will always remain as the last force acting upon it left it. A carbon fiber rod has both integrity and flexibility. If you apply enough pressure it will change its shape, but if you stop applying pressure it will bounce back where it was. So the therapist must have in a way a carbon fiber personality. These are the personal characteristics that are likely to make the whole process of therapy work. Is that the only ingredient needed? No. Aside from that, the therapist needs also some guiding principles. The first one is an idea that comes from another school of thought, the cognitive behavioral therapy, and it was selected specifically because it does not limit the wide open views on the shape the mind can assume. It is the triumvirate of thoughts, emotions, behavior. They must be viewed as a triangle in outer space. There is no up and down in outer space. You cannot arrange things in a hierarchical order. None of these three concepts, thought, behavior, emotions, has any supremacy relative to the others. Each has a relation with the other, two, uh, but without any hierarchy. That means thoughts can influence emotions as much as emotions can influence thoughts, and behavior can influence both as much as it is influenced by them. They all have influence on each other, but they also have a certain level of independence from each other. What is this information or concept good for? You might ask. Simple, it is establishes this fundamental truth that you can manipulate any of these elements by changing the others. The patient exhibits behaviors that are detrimental. You can change that by changing the accompanying thoughts and emotions. The patient experiences a detrimental emotion. You can change that by changing the accompanying behavior and thoughts. The last thing uh, you need to know is that uh, while you might have to stop an engine in order to repair it or shut down a building in order to renovate it, it is the opposite with the mind. You cannot repair a mind while it is at rest. You must put the mind in motion and repair it while on the move. Besides, you cannot even establish what is wrong unless you see the mind in, a mo in motion. In structuralist psychotherapy, we do not use meditation, relaxation, which are meant to stop the mind, stop emotions, stop behavior, or at least restrict substantially their mobility. Structuralist therapy is loud, dynamic, animated, because we believe that we are not aiming at strengthening those qualities that make the mind suitable for relaxation and passivity. We are looking to optimize this complex apparatus when it is used in real life. Not in solitude, but in the course of transacting with other human beings, or negotiating a task or a goal. I'm not denying the value of relaxation and solitude and contemplation. They are very valuable, and they remain an option, but they are just not the focus of structuralist psychotherapy. So, this structuralist psychotherapy needs motion. But motion needs direction, and when I say direction, I definitely do not mean a straight line. The movement is not chaotic, but it is definitely sinuous, meandering, like a river on a flat land. So this is the course of the dialogue in the structuralist psychotherapy. Stagnation, by the way, is one of the major indications of breakdown. Patients often are stagnant, either because they stopped moving or they are moving too fast. Too chaotic, and they go nowhere. They just tread water. Structuralist psychotherapy involves setting a direction or a goal very early in the process and also some landmarks on that route or path to make sure that the patient knows he is making progress. 
The goalpost is set according to the status of the patient. In my experience, often as uh, the goal can be as simple as staying alive from one visit to another. If that is achieved, the goal becomes lessening pain. Once that is achieved, attaining happiness is next. And as I mentioned before, as the patient is moving towards the goal, therapy happens. You continuously work with the patient to dismantle, repair, replace, straighten, troubleshoot every part of the mind who seems to rattle, choke, sputter, gripe, seize, clunk. What is the concrete technique? First, the most powerful tool is dialogue. For select few, reading materials, instructional multimedia, like the one you are watching right now, may be of use, but by far the most powerful uh, instrument is face-to-face -face dialogue or sometimes also face-to-face -face conversations with several persons in the same time under the form of group or family therapy. But they still remain occasional adjuncts and not the main form of intervention. I'm going to uh, go even uh, deeper into setting some guidelines, but as I said many times, these are very loose guidelines, are more like naturally occurring phases of treatment that happen spontaneously. They are not to be pursued and imposed on the interaction, but more used as a measuring tool of progress. In the first phase of therapy, the focus will be in laying the foundation of the new structure, the new mind you are trying to build together with the patient. At the very bottom, it should be the idea of the mind being the product of the brain. It sounds simple, but it's very important. Then on top of it, the idea that reality does not have a rigid connection with thoughts, emotions, and behavior. There is no such a thing uh, that a set of circumstances leads to one and only one interpretation, one and only one emotional reaction, one and only one behavioral response. Patients are almost universally entrenched in the illusion that there is no distinction between reality and their thoughts, emotions, and behavior. One reality leads to one understanding, one emotion, and one behavioral response. Therefore, they are convinced that the only way to get rid of distress is to change the reality. If you are devastated because you lost your job, the only thing will make you happy is another job or getting the old one back. If your spouse intends to divorce, the only way to alleviate the pain is to convince the spouse not to divorce. This unilateral relationship that people seem to, to be indoctrinated with needs to be shaken, weakened, and gotten rid of. There is no unilateral relationship between reality, our thoughts, for the simple reason that our thoughts are unique to us, and everybody has their own interpretation of the reality. And despite what people believe, we do have control over the thoughts, and it's part of therapy to learn how to regain control over what we choose to think, how we choose to interpret what is happening to us. Implicitly, it means that nothing is inevitable, our thoughts are not inevitable, our suffering is not inevitable. Even if a patient insists that these are concepts he is very familiar with and already tried without benefits, we must assure patient that there is no end to efforts to regain control over our mind. I have from time to time patients claiming I am telling them nothing new and they are long aware of uh, anything I tell them, but it doesn't help. My answer to them is like this, if you failed controlling your thoughts, emotions and behavior, that happened not because you are trying to achieve the impossible, but rather because you are not using the right strategy, or you did not carry what could be a successful strategy long enough to succeed. The second phase is teaching patients again 
how to use their minds, teaching them logic, reason, analysis, option generating, option evaluating, probabilistic thinking, tolerance of uncertainty, executing, using feedback loops to constantly readjust one's actions, strategy, strategy, tactics. As I said many times in the past, we do not tell people what to think, but we certainly teach them how to think. Something stunning is that no psychotherapy school I have heard of explicitly addresses this issue at all. It is like science of logic, rhetoric, eloquence, epistemology do not exist in therapist's field of focus. It is surprising that the most powerful tools in the history of mankind that lead to opinion formation, reality interpretation, truth discovery are practically non-existent in psychotherapy, which is supposed to be the most focused effort on repairing beliefs and perceptions about oneself, about the interactions with other human beings and all sorts of other events. I am by no means implying that all these very intelligent scientists involved with this topic of psychotherapy somehow forgot about logic, and there is ample evidence that they use it all the time, but it has never been specifically acknowledged as a major tool in therapy. Until now, that is, since I am speaking about it right now. I was recently asked by the mother of an obese patient how, uh, how simple talk could convince her son to lose weight. Before I answered, she insisted that she tried everything under the sun, talking nicely, talking bluntly. She begged, she threatened, nothing worked. So what kind of miracle am I going to perform? My answer was simple, using the good old tools that people used for thousands of years. Nothing exotic, just good old reason, logic, Socratic questioning, rhetoric, negotiation. No question that psychology has its own tools, like analysis of automatic thoughts and schemas, analysis of unconscious conflicts, or defenses, or transference. That is still valid. But I have no idea why the big minds of this field attempted to walk before they can crawl, or run before they can walk, largely ignoring the mechanism by which people all through the history have been influencing each other's minds. Structuralist therapy is turning back to the roots of human thought and uses tools of logic, rhetoric, epistemology and more recent heuristic models like strategy, tactics, planning, probabilistic thinking, using feedback, executing. Don't be scared about these big words like epistemology. Epistemology simply means the science of how to get to know things in life, how to find the truth, what really is as opposed to what isn't. Structuralist psychotherapy does not ignore emotions. Emotions are discussed always. They are like a background chorus underlying the main conversation and often taking the center stage. I'm going to stop here because this topic can branch infinitely at this point. So, let's move to the third phase. The third phase is rehearsal. And it can be on theoretical or hypothetical issues but most of the time is on real-life events, either past but more so on current events that are unfolding in the present. It is like the person who chooses to learn how to play the guitar by giving a performance every day. This process does entail a subtle maneuver that is done very, very gently and gradually. It is the therapist becoming more and more of a passive observer of the process. It is like removing the training wheels from a bicycle but in a very gradual manner. If I think about this, that could be a very good idea for a gadget, a training wheel with the quality of uh, gradually fading away the level of support it gives to the biker. Maybe you engineers out there, give me a call and we can make some money on this. Now, the fourth phase of therapy, 
Surprise, there is no fourth phase. In most of the current therapies, phase four is the ceremonial ending of the treatment when patient and therapist shake hands, cry in each other's arms, wish each other good luck in life, etc., etc. Guess what? In structural psychotherapy, there is no end, or at least no accepting, accepted, well-defined end. The connection remains even if the visits stop. This is, was designed especially to bring in line reality with the practice of therapy. Any textbook of psychiatry will tell you that the majority of psychiatric illnesses are chronic. They fluctuate, go into remission, sometimes for decades, but very often they do relapse, especially when treatment is stopped or when life becomes particularly difficult again. Structural psychotherapy does not have an end. It is an open-ended practice. Visits do very often stop because of the patient feeling well and being too busy living his life or moving to other areas or deciding to explore other approaches to psychotherapy. But there is never an official dissolution of the connection between therapist and patient. It can be reactivated at any time without any ceremony. I can almost feel the wave of indignation that is choking some managed care people. But don't worry about these hoodwinkers. They will find a way to keep their stratospheric income intact, no matter what I believe about psychotherapy. So let's review in uh, two sentences what, I, what just happened. I presented for your consideration, structuralist psychotherapy. This style of psychotherapy is based on the idea that the mind is a unique structure that must be repaired or optimized using a strong connection between therapist and patient, using as foundation the ideas that the mind is a function of the brain, that what we feel and think is relative, not dictated in a rigid way by the reality, that relearning how to feel, how to behave, how to think according to the rules of logic, reason, modern heuristic principles, is the way to go. Well, I guess that is it. You made it through another presentation. Keep checking this channel for further topics of interest.